Hello, Harvest family. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Hopefully, you're not just now realizing it is Mother's Day. Hopefully, you've spoiled uh, moms this morning. Uh, I also wanted to update you on how we're doing uh, with our budget. Um, I, I'm not used to having to talk about money in front of you week after week uh, because when we were able to gather together in our bulletin each and every week, it told you exactly how we we're doing. Uh, so I, obviously we don't have that now, so I do want to give you an update. Uh, certainly the first week that all this happened, um, when we were not able to meet, we did take a hit. But, but since then we have uh, made up uh, not only that hit, but, uh, but some beyond that as well. Overall, our giving is 3% above what we budgeted for. So we're so, so thankful that, um, that you've continued uh, to give, even though we're not physically able to meet together. Um, also, it's been a while since we've talked about this, but uh, there are people that have asked about um, a fund for uh, harvest people, people that go to our church um, that have been impacted by COVID, whether it's losing their job or some other financial hardship uh, in relationship to COVID. So um, we do have a fund set up. Uh, the link is below this video if you would like to uh, give to that as well. And then the last link that I'll mention is our connection card um, below. If, if you want to take a next step step in connecting with our church, um, you can fill out that connection card. Maybe that's telling us that, hey, you, you've been joining us each and every week now for the videos. Um, maybe we already know you exist. We have your information, but you, you're ready to join one of our community groups. You could fill out the connection card for that reason. Uh, or lastly, and, and we're getting more of this, is we have more people asking us for uh, ways to serve. If that's you, um, fill out the connection card below and uh, we will get back to you as, as soon as we can. Um, in the email uh, that hopefully you read uh, about the sermon this week, we did warn that this uh, sermon is PG, maybe even PG-13. Um, I'm not going to be graphic at all, um, but just the nature of 2 Samuel 11, the story of David and Bathsheba, it brings up some topics that maybe you're not ready for younger ears uh, to hear today. So if that's the case, hit pause, uh, maybe get them something to do, and, and then join us. Uh, however, parents, I, I would encourage you, um, you probably need to start talking to your kids uh, about sex earlier than you want to. Uh, our world talks to them right away, and, and we want to be sure that we are telling them what God has to say, how God um, has created uh, sex. So I, I would encourage you, even if you don't have them watch this today, um, you got to talk to your kids. We've got to disciple them in this area as well. Well, let's, let's jump right into it. Uh, our truth statement today uh, is that God's chosen king can sin so heinously and God can remove his sin while not removing its consequences points to the need for a greater king. Let me read that one more time. That God's chosen king can sin so heinously and God can remove his sin while not removing its consequences points to the need for a greater king, our need for Jesus. We come to 2 Samuel 11, and David has really been the hero of the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham was flawed. Jacob was certainly flawed. Moses, in his greatness, even he was flawed. God didn't allow him to come into the promised land. 
You read the book of Judges and we're disgusted by how evil people can be when they're left to their own ways. We came to Saul in 1 Samuel, God's, God's, uh, or the first king for Israel, um, and, and he quickly faded. Uh, he looked like he was doing all right, and then he flamed out really quickly, and then David comes on the scene, and he's humble. He trusts the Lord. Um, he shows the Lord's kindness, like we saw in last week's sermon, uh, to all kinds of people. And sure, there have been some some red flags along the way, some warnings that, that David didn't have it all together. But, but we've witnessed over and over again David's extraordinary integrity, um, usually in, in high-pressured uh, circumstances. One thing that I love about the Bible is that it doesn't pull any punches. Scripture really tells it like it is. Uh, you might come to 2 Samuel 11 and go, whoa, I had no idea anything was like this in the Bible. And that's because we we like to make things look better. right? We, we put filters on. We sanitize things. Uh, when we post to social media, we're posting the best stuff from the best angle in the best light. We post pictures about our amazing food or, or the incredible adventure we went on or our kids' accomplishments or job promotions, whatever it is, we post about things that portray the image that, that we want uh, to be shown of our lives. But the Bible isn't like that. The Bible gives us raw, unfiltered views of life. Churches might not do a great job of this, but it isn't because Scripture doesn't show us what's really happening. So we come now to 2 Samuel 11, and we're really tempted to uh, take David off the pedestal that, that maybe we've put him on here. I, I want us to see two things in this passage. Um, I want you to walk away with this. I, I do want us to see the, the depths of our sinful nature. So uh, I hope you come to this passage with humility. It's easy to read this story and be disgusted with David and think, oh, I would never do anything like that. And you might be right. But you also haven't had the opportunity that David had. You haven't had the resources and the power that are at a king's disposal. So really, who knows what any of us might do if we were in David's shoes. We're all just one bad decision away from a shipwreck. So I do want us to see our, our sinful nature and how destructive it is. But this story is intended to point us to our need for a king. It's incredible that God will fulfill his promise to a sin-seeking man. That God's faithfulness overcomes our unfaithfulness. And what we see in David's fall here is how badly we need Jesus. So let's jump right in in verse 1 of chapter 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Ramah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And we'll pause there. So there are some people that... that suggests that the reason we're told uh, about the springtime, and this is when kings go out to battle and we find David in his house, is that right off the bat, David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He should have been out leading his people, leading the armies 
into war against the Ammonites, that, that he was supposed to be taking ground for God's people, for defending God's people. So some blame David's fall in this chapter for, for not going into battle, that, that it was like the first domino that knocked down all the other dominoes. He didn't join the physical battle, and we'll see that he certainly didn't have his head in the spiritual battle. His guard wasn't up as he was in the comfort of his palace. Now, there are others that, that aren't so sure, that aren't convinced that that's why those details are there. I won't get into their arguments for that. But I will say that over and over again, we notice that David on the battlefield is, is pretty incredible. That, that he seems to often be at his best uh, his integrity has been tested over and over again. He's passed with flying colors when he's doing what God has commanded him to do out on the battlefield. And so I do think that there is something to David being pretty comfortable at this point in his life. And maybe he did take it easy. David, it says, he gets up from the comfort of his couch, right? From the comfort of his beautiful palace. And I think there might be an unspoken warning here to us that comfort can be dangerous. We let our guard down. And, and maybe you've experienced this um, at a job, right? You get a new job and you're out to prove yourself. You're busting, you're behind, you're working extra hours, uh, you're volunteering for extra projects, you want to show that you're dependable, that you can roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty, and eventually it pays off. You get a promotion, maybe a, a, a second promotion. Pretty soon you're heading up that team that you were desperate just to be on. And then you, you kind of feel like you've arrived. You let off the gas a little, maybe, maybe not even intentionally at first. It's just human nature. I know that when life is hard, it's a lot easier for me to see my need for God and to hunger for, for that constant connection with God. I'm pretty sure that when David faced Goliath, he was very aware of his need for God. When Saul tried to kill him over and over again, we, we see in the Psalms what he writes about his dependence on the Lord. So when we are comfortable, when life is smooth, when it's kind of easy, it's simple for us to forget our need for the Lord. So back to David. He's at a place in life where he's feeling pretty good. God has just promised him back in chapter 7 that, that there will be this dynasty from his family. That forever on the throne there will be a king from his line. He's planted Israel. Right There's rest from their enemies. They're not on the run anymore like they've been for so much of their history. Right? There are enemies that are out there, but it's about them going out and, and battling them on their turf, not, not on the turf of Israel. So he's feeling pretty good. He takes an afternoon nap, it sounds like, and he goes for a stroll on the rooftop, maybe trying to catch a cool uh, breeze in the evening. And then, bam, he sees a woman bathing. The end of verse 2, it says that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. This word saw, it's not a quick look. It isn't just a, a glance. He saw her and he didn't stop looking. It's not like he saw her and went, whoa, and, and, and looks away, hoping that he can forget. Right? That, that wouldn't be necessarily a big deal. 
But this word isn't, oh, I didn't mean to see that, and now I'm going to look away and hope that I can forget that I just saw this naked woman bathing. No, David saw her, and he didn't stop looking. He kept on seeing. He gazed. He saw everything that he could see. He wanted to take it all in, this woman that was beautiful. His eyes wanted what he saw. Now, there are questions about why in the world was she bathing on a rooftop? People are asking, was she trying to get David to notice her? The text doesn't tell us. We know for sure that David is at fault here. David is responsible for his own sin. We aren't told what Bathsheba's motives were. We do find out later that that her bathing, uh, specifically that day, was connected to ritual purification. So you could argue that, that she cared about her personal holiness, about honoring the Lord. Some people ask, like, okay, if you knew someone could see you, that the king could see you from his elevated palace why in the world would you bathe there? And that, that is a valid question, but we don't know. We don't know if she was hoping to catch David's eye, but we do know that David didn't stop looking. He continued to see her. Man, it's impossible today to not see something sexual um, throughout your day. I think that I notice this even more as I raise my kids with young boys and young girls, I just hate all of the images that they're exposed to through advertisements, TV, movies, through, through just how uh, people dress. So I don't know what it was like for David back then, but I do know what it's like today. It's difficult to turn on the TV or see a billboard, or, or, or stand in line at a grocery store next to a magazine rack, or, or to see a movie without seeing something. Are you like David? Instead of averting your eyes, do you keep on seeing? There are some movie scenes from back in the day that somehow I justified in my mind as not being that big of a deal. That I was mature enough to handle this or or that, that it was artistic because it was in this movie when really it was just me taking an opportunity to see flesh. Maybe, maybe it isn't accidental that you're seeing something. Maybe it's something you're seeking out. Maybe it's something you're looking for. James 1.14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Man, so often we tempt ourselves. Right? It isn't some outside force. It isn't always a spiritual attack. James is telling us, no, sometimes you're the one that lures yourself into sin. And, and not just with sexual sin, any sin. Right? We're so good at tempting ourselves. Later in James, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We don't see David resist here. He saw and he kept on seeing. He lingered. Our sin so often seems harmless to us, but in the end, we find out how dangerous and destructive it is. I wouldn't be surprised if if David, as he saw and realized he shouldn't be looking, quickly justify it and said, I'm just looking. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, You've heard it said, 
You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Don't be fooled by what seems harmless. A look, a little flirting, a private message. Verse 3, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And the one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And you can see what the messenger's doing here. He says, David, isn't that Bathsheba? Right? She has a name, David. She's a person. David, she's a daughter. She has a dad. Her name, or his name is Eliam. David, she's a wife. Actually, she's the wife of one of your men, Uriah, one of your mighty men. David, you know this woman's husband. You fought together with him in battle for Israel. He's been risking his life, and he's risking his life right now for your kingdom. So this informant, he's humanizing Bathsheba. She has a name. She has a family. She's got a dad. She's got a history. She has likes and dislikes. She has a husband. She isn't a sexual object, David. It's probably not surprising that pornography sites have seen a substantial uptick during the pandemic. And we've all heard um, by now over and over again that, that porn uh, really helps people uh, objectify the, the people that they're looking at. It, it tricks us into seeing them as objects for our sexual gratification. We have believed a lie that sex is all about what I want when I want it. We miss the union of sex within the confines of marriage as God created it. And if God created it, shouldn't we understand that God knows what is best? We know that fewer young people are getting married now than ever before in our history. And there are several factors for that, but one is certainly the access to porn that young men have. Right? They have access to get what they want when they want it without any of the actual relationship. And then when they try a real relationship with a woman, they come to realize that people are complicated, that, that relationships are messy and they take work. And they're not used to working for what they want. So they quickly throw in the towel They've fallen for the lie that there can be sexual gratification with no strings attached. Well, the words from this messenger that Bathsheba is her name, that she has a family, that she even has a husband, it's like a yellow light at an intersection. A yellow light, it means caution. You need to look out. The light's about to turn red. And I know that for a lot of people, you see a yellow light. And what you automatically do is hit the gas. And now I can hear some of you making the argument, but Greg, like depending on where you are in the intersection, it's actually safer if you hit the gas. Yeah, I get that. Except you always hit the gas no matter where you are in the intersection. So what do you do when God flashes up the yellow light, so to speak? When he throws up caution, when, when he says, hey, this is not good. This is not the way that I've told you to go. 
Do you trust him when you see that yellow light and slam on the brakes? Or do you gun it? Because it's a trust issue. Right? Do we actually trust that God knows what is best? Do we trust that God's ways are, are what is good? Do we trust that following him will be the most satisfying, the most soul-fulfilling way for us to live? That, that when we trust him and follow him, that that is where life is. Like I said, one of the major problems with pornography is we make people objects. And this messenger's words to David, we're saying, David, Bathsheba is a person. Verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. We're going to see this word sent over and over again with, uh, within this chapter. David sends people left and right. It's as, if, it's as if he's playing God and trying to control everything. We also see in, in this uh, verse the word took. And it might make you think of God's warning to Israel when they asked for a king. He said, man, they're going to take and take and take from you. They're going to take your fields. They're going to take your crops. This king will take your sons and your daughters, your horses. He's going to take your money. Now, David, he's actually been a king that gives over and over again. He's pointed to uh, Jesus and the generosity of our true king. But now we see David takes says he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. David sent his men to get her. She didn't have a choice here. And while we do see some examples of women resisting unwanted sexual advances in this book, this is the king. David had power. And I don't know how she felt about David, but I doubt there was room to refuse the king. It's not like the king's men came and said, hey, I want to invite you to come see the king. No, it was, you're coming with us. The king has summoned you. So she came, and the author tell, tells us that David lay with her. People way more observant than me have noticed the way uh, the author of 2 Samuel wrote uh, this last verse and, and comparing it to Eve in the garden. Eve saw the fruit. It looked good, a delight to her eyes. To be desired, she took it and ate. David saw the woman. She was good to see. He desired her. He took her and he lay with her. Like Adam and Eve, David is ruled here by his desires. He's not ruled by the word of the Lord. Think about it. Even if you just followed a quarter of your desires, think of the dumpster fire that your life would be. The verse goes on. And it says, then she returned to her house. David's done with her. He sends her back home. He gets what he wants. He gratified himself with her. And again, notice her name isn't even used. And I'm not suggesting that, that if he would have had her spend the night and, and fed her breakfast in the morning, that it would have made it better, but it is telling. David was using her for his own gratification Sex within the boundaries of a lifelong marriage between man and woman is a gift from God. But our world tells us that that isn't sexual freedom. 
And it's easy to get tricked into thinking that God's boundaries, uh, they hold us back and they, they restrict us, they confine us. But the reality is His boundaries protect us. Right? God's boundaries are always good for us. We think back to the garden. God gave Adam and Eve freedom to eat of all the plants except for one. Right? He said, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil don't eat this fruit. It will be terrible for you. It will bring death. And man has struggled to trust God's boundaries ever since then in every area, including sex. We'll see the beginning of the fallout from David's decision in chapter 11, and it's significant. But it's shocking to see how far the ripples go beyond this chapter. Sin always costs you more than you realize. Now, who knows um, if David had planned future nights with Bathsheba, but I am sure that he thought that he was in the clear once he sent her home. He had no clue what his moment of pleasure was going to lead to. And then in verse 5, the bomb is dropped. It says, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. And obviously, it's, it's not like David didn't know how pregnancies happen, but I'm sure he didn't think that after one encounter, he would get her pregnant. Well, David, we're told, sends for Uriah. The news of the pregnancy, it's a, it's a potential to be confronted by sin. I mean, it was a confrontation of his sin. We don't know. Maybe David had already stopped thinking about Bathsheba. Maybe his mind had completely moved on. But now his sin is brought before him. And the question is, what will he do? Right? How will David respond? Before what we've seen of David is, is here's a man with incredible integrity. And you wonder almost, is David going to confess? Right? Does, he, does he have the guts to confess now to Uriah? Is that what he's doing? Well, Uriah comes and David asks him questions. Questions that make sense for someone coming from the battle. He asks him, how's the battle going? How are the men doing? And then he finishes the conversation. He tells him, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah leaves. And, and David, we've seen his kindness. We just saw multiple examples of his extraordinary kindness in the last chapter. So it wouldn't be that surprising that David would show kindness to one of his soldiers that brought him news from the battle. What we realize, though, is David didn't bring Uriah there for him to confess his sin to him. No, David brought him back, hoping to get him to go home that night and sleep with his wife and cover up the king's sin. We don't trust God's word when it says that we're to confess our sin. We don't trust that confessing our sin is actually the best thing for us. Confessing to Uriah might have been the hardest thing that David would have ever done. It would have been brutal. You can imagine the fury of Uriah, the pain and the shame that David would have felt in telling him that he slept with his wife and she's now pregnant. The humiliation of the king admitting what he had done to one of his faithful, loyal soldiers. Uh, I'm not at all saying that confessing sin is easy, but it does bring freedom. And God is faithful to forgive. Psalm 32.1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, 
My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. The psalmist says his bones wasted away when he kept his sin to himself. Hiding our sin does no good. But we've been hiding since Adam and Eve ate the fruit. They realized their sin. They saw that they were naked. They were ashamed. They hid. But the hiding never fixes anything. It traps us. It's like this little prison cell as if we can hide from God. Confession, though, frees us. We cannot cover our sin in an effective way. We need the blood of Jesus to cover our sins. We might be able to hide it for a little bit, but we can never cover it. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, instead of confessing, David trusted that he could deal with his sin in his way. So he sent Uriah home again. He, again, David sent David thinks that he is in control, but Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps at the door of the king's house. Well, David finds out at some point. He questions Uriah. He says, why didn't you go home? 2 Samuel 11, 11. Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house? to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. So we don't know if Uriah found out what happened, right? There's some that think that, that maybe the gossip got around and, and, and Uriah found out and maybe his words here are a brilliant rebuke of the king. But they certainly had the potential to cut deep. First, he mentions the ark. The ark reminds us of God's covenant with his people. The ark holds in it the Ten Commandments. So literally, the words, you shall not commit adultery and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, they're in the ark. Intentional or not, just the mention of the ark points to David's sin. He says the ark, Israel and Judah, they're, they're in booths. Right? They're camping out in the field. He says, how am I going to go to the comfort of my home? How am I going to eat and drink, indulge in these things that, that my brothers in war don't have? And then the final blow is, how am I going to lay with my wife, David? So whether Uriah knew what David had done or not, he just said he's unwilling to do all the things that David's done. Stayed in the comfort of his home, eating and drinking, laying with Uriah's life while Israel and Judah and Uriah are out fighting the battle. Right, here's another opportunity for David to come to his senses. These words were another chance for David to come face to face with his sin and to make amends. Well, David tells Uriah to stay another day. Right, his cover-up didn't work. So he moves on to the next plan. He invites Uriah to dinner. He gets him drunk hoping that drunkenness will win out over his integrity. But again, Uriah doesn't go to his house. Right? Drunk Uriah is better than sober King David. You might have noticed if you read the chapter that God hasn't been mentioned yet in this chapter. That won't happen until the last verse of the chapter. But David is trying to do all of this 
on his own. Who knows what would have happened if David would have turned to the Lord, if he would have turned from his sin and confessed to the Lord. It would have been hard. There still would have been fallout from his decisions, but it would have been better than David's attempts to cover up his sin. If only David would have trusted God. David was deceived in his heart. He thought he could fix his problems. He thought that he, he had the intellect and the power to protect himself from the consequences of his sin. His one goal was to keep his sin from being known. He's becoming more and more desperate to hide what he has done. So David decides on a new course of action. He decides to send a note with Uriah to Joab, the commander of the army, with instructions to have Uriah put up front in the battle where it's the most fierce, and then at the right time withdraw the the army so that Uriah is killed and, and it covers up David's sin. It's amazing that David went from noticing, seeing a woman naked bathing to having her husband murdered in just a matter of weeks. We rarely can see how far our sin will take us and how destructive it will be. Well, the commander does just as David says. Uriah is sent to the front lines. They they draw back when the fighting's fierce. Uriah dies, but it's not just him. There are others that were up there, fellow Israelites that were killed as well. So David didn't just have Uriah killed. These other men were killed too. Well, Joab sends a messenger uh, to get the news to David. David hears. He hears that Uriah has died. And and David sends a message back. He says, don't let that displease you to Joab. Maybe he was concerned that Joab felt a little guilty about this. He says, don't let it displease you. And you get the feeling that while David's saying that to Joab, I think he's saying it to himself too. He's trying to deceive himself into believing that all these decisions have been worth it. He gave in to his original feeling and ever since then he's ignored any feeling of conviction of sin that would have brought him to repentance. And and while conviction of sin doesn't feel good, it's a gift. Conviction of sin is God's grace to see your sin for what it is. And it's an invitation to turn from that sin and turn to God. But like David, our nature is to suppress our conviction. right? To hope that, that we can move on. Well, we're told that Bathsheba hears of her husband's death. And she laments. She mourns for her husband. There's no indication that she knows what David has done. And after the time of mourning is over, David sends for her Uh, to become his wife, and then their son was born. And I'm guessing that he convinced himself that everything was settled. Now Uriah's out of the way. My son, I I get to be his father. Now I get to enjoy Bathsheba as my wife and not just a mistress in the night. Man, we're so good at deceiving ourselves. I'm sure that David thought when all this started off, it was small. Maybe, Maybe that initial look wasn't such a big deal, he thought. We do this with all kinds of sin. What what sin have you labeled as not that big of a deal? Now, this story causes us to think about sexual sin, but we do this with all sin. We're so quick to rationalize all kinds of sin as not really being that big of a deal. It's hard for us to see 
how far our sin can take us. But when you read 2 Samuel 11, it's even harder to see that this sin with Bathsheba is a small thing. Right? When we entertain sin, we, we let it fester and we give it room to grow. But its growth takes off exponentially. It's, it's out of control. And like David's sin, it grows into something that we never would have guessed. The boundaries that God has given us sexually are good. If you aren't married yet, man, trust those boundaries. Trust that God has given you good boundaries for your own good. Guard those boundaries. Trust that God knows what is best for you. Don't trick yourself into thinking that, that this sin is small, that, that, that I can get as close as I can to those boundaries without crossing over. Man, guard those boundaries. Married couples, guard those boundaries. If you are married, do you remember the effort that you put into your relationship before you were married? Right? The, the creativity, the pursuit of this person that you would one day marry, the thoughtfulness, the intentionality in getting to know this person, the work in, in showing them how you feel about them. Married couples, it doesn't take long for us to put it on cruise control instead of working hard at loving the spouse that God has given us. Married couples, I, I encourage you to resist looking outside of the good boundaries that God has given you. It's easy to see ventures outside of those boundaries as small. Right? We tell ourselves, I'm just looking. Or it's just a little harmless flirting. Or we convince ourselves that, that this coworker just... They understand me so well. They're such a good listener. Or, or this is just an, uh, a lunch with an old friend. Or, or maybe we say, it's just in my mind. It's just a fantasy. I would never act on it. And maybe you're right. I'm sure David never thought he would do what he did in chapter 11. Our, our sin can look small, but it's ready to explode. And God's boundaries are so good for us. Will you trust in God? Will you trust that what God has for you is life. I heard a pastor talking about working with people in his congregation over decades, um, people that, that had uh, had an affair. And one thing that he heard over and over again from them is something like this. They'd say, uh, at the time in the affair, I'd never in my life had I felt more alive. And, and we can think that we find life outside of God's boundaries. But those same people came to realize that while in the moment they felt so alive, they came to see that they were actually so dead. That they'd never been more dead to truth. They'd never been more dead to the people that they said they cared about. They were dead to the damage that they were causing all around them. We need to keep God's boundaries. Right? We see God's boundaries in Genesis chapter 1. The earth is formless and void, it says, and God speaks. He speaks and gives it form. First, He separates the light from the darkness. And He gathers the water and, and He makes land. He makes these borders with the sea and the land. And He makes it so that, that life can grow here and so that life can team over here. He puts the chaos into order. He puts parameters so that life can thrive in these different places. This is what God does. He knows how to bring about life. He borders our sexuality and it's for our good. 
Because these boundaries, these borders are good. We're so tempted to cross these borders, but the reality is it always leads to destruction. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin affects us differently than any other sin will. I'm not saying it's a bigger deal, but I am saying that there's a lot of shrapnel that comes with sexual sin. Our world uh, wants to make our sexuality the most important thing about us, and that's a lie. Sex within God's boundaries is great, but if you try to make your sexuality the most important part of you, you will be so uh, sorely disappointed. Right? The most important part of you has always been reserved for God. That you would trust Jesus as Lord and become a child of God. You were made to know Him. You were made to live in this union with the Creator of everything. That is where you'll find your deepest longings fulfilled because that is the one you were made for. Well, this is how chapter 11 ends. In the verse 27, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And we remember David said to Joab, Don't let this displease you. And I think David was saying to himself, Don't let this displease you. Trying to convince himself that it was going to be all right. But we hear that God saw everything. right? That this displeased the Lord. And it sounds like bad news. And in a sense, it is. But as we'll see next week, God won't let this go. God, is going to, uh, God isn't going to let David's self-deception win out. God is going to bring his sin to light. And this will lead to God's mercy on David's life. There are consequences still to come. Right? You, you cannot live like David did in this chapter without lots of damage. Throughout his family, there will be people dealing with the shrapnel from the decisions that he made for a long time. However, David will confess. God will give mercy to him. If God has convicted you of sin, whether it's sexual sin or not, I want you to know, man, that he's ready to pour out his, his mercy. Confess your sin to him and what you'll find is God's grace and mercy, His forgiveness. Right? Confess that you haven't trusted in Him, that you've, that you've turned uh, to lies and trusted in those. We need to turn from our sin and turn to Him. One of the hardest parts the last two months for me has been, uh, has been being removed from community. And I'm grateful for phones. I'm, I can't believe I'm grateful for Zoom and video conferencing. Um, it, it's, it's better than the alternative. But I do hope that this uh, creates in us a longing for community, a longing for Christian community. We need these relationships because God has made us that way. And part of Christian community is actually letting other people know how we're doing what's going on in life, including our sin. And I'm not saying that you confess to the whole church. I mean, there, there are times where that's appropriate, but I am saying that you tell a brother or sister in Christ, right? Someone that's, that's godly, someone that you respect, someone that will pray for you, someone that will check in with you, someone that will support you, that will keep you accountable, 
right? someone that's more concerned with glorifying God and pointing you to Jesus than making you feel good. Man, if you need any help at all, uh, please contact us. If men, if you uh, if you realize that that sexual sin is something that has you trapped. And maybe you've never thought of yourself as trapped, but, but you realize you can't get out of it like you always think you can. Well, we have a group called a Harvest Restoration, and in the links below, we've got a way for you to contact them. Women, uh, we have a group, if you've, been, uh, if you've been impacted by your husband's sexual addiction or, or a boyfriend's sexual addiction, we have a support group that's waiting to start um, to be a help to you. But, but let's not... Let's not continue to try and hide in our sin and, and, um, and suppress conviction, but let's bring it to the Lord. Right? If anything, this passage shows us how desperately we need Jesus, our true King. Let's pray. God, will you help us to trust in you? Will you help us to flee the schemes of the enemy? God, will you help us to see that the boundaries you've given us in life are actually life-giving? Would you give us the ability to see through our self-deception? Lord, I know it's hard, it's weird uh, listening to a sermon through a screen, but God, I, I pray that your word would convict us in all the areas that we need conviction. Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters in Christ that feel trapped in any kind of sin. God, I pray that they, would, that they would have the courage, Lord, that you'd give them the courage to come to you humbly confessing their sin and their need for you. And Jesus, I thank you that you are faithful and just, that when we come to you and confess, you forgive us of our sin. God, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. And we pray, God, that, that you would grow us to be more and more and more like Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to fill out a connection card for any of the reasons I said before, or maybe you have another reason, the link below uh, will get you there. Can't wait to see you again, uh, hopefully, hopefully soon, uh, face to face.